Hey, you're listening to the C3 Network Podcast with Dan Holland. Our mission is to create a network of micro churches that are finding, teaching, and equipping people to be on mission. Our hope is that this encourages you. Be sure to leave us a review so you can help us share our message with more people who need to hear it. And now, Dan Holland. Just before Thanksgiving of 2021, USA Today reported that Starbucks and Amazon opened this new type of store in New York City. Customers can order their favorite coffee on Starbucks app and then utilize Amazon's just walkout technology, they call it, which doesn't require a cashier. It's kind of like what you do at Walmart or Target and self-checkout. The article that's covering that story talked about the wonder of getting your favorite drink or snack, quote, without ever having to interact with other people, end quote. Now, Starbucks senior vice president, Katie Young stated, we're really interested to see what role this type of store has to play. You know, we've all heard the jokes like, you know, ministry or work or life would be so great if it wasn't for people. Or how about, if it wasn't for people, we could all be holy. We're living in very interesting times when we've become familiar with terms such as quarantine and social distancing. Now, that may be fine in the short term, but the reality is this, and listen close. Humans are not built for isolation. We need each other. As much as I'd like sometimes for that not to be true, it is. I need you and you need me. That's what the owner's manual teaches. It teaches that we need each other and we need to learn how to do life together. You know, in baptism, we're united with Jesus just as a man and woman are joined together on their special day during the wedding ceremony. But they're not just joined with Jesus. When you're married, you see, the bride and the groom are joined to each other, but they also find themselves belonging to a much larger family after saying, I do. That's true for us, too. Now, one place that we're reminded of this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. You're probably familiar. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. These 3,000 people started the day as strangers, acquaintances, or maybe they were friends. But now they were joined together both spiritually and relationally to each other. Every person who is united with Christ in baptism is added to this very same family, the family of God. By grace and through faith, we are born again into the family of God. I like this quote. The local church is not merely a place we go. It is designed to be a place we call home and a people we call family. Now that's really exciting, but also a tad bit scary. Let me explain. Do you remember the first time you spent time with your spouse's extended family? That first Thanksgiving? Or maybe it was a summer family reunion when you met all the aunts, the uncles, cousins, nieces, and nephews. Remember that? For about 10 minutes, it was fun and exciting, wasn't it? But after a few conversations, you realized your spouse was related to some real carnival crazies. Somehow, he or she had managed to hide these relatives from you prior to the I do's, but now you couldn't get away from them. It's not long after you're baptized that this realization often will set in about the church family as well. There are some real nut jobs among us, folks with serious baggage, personality quirks, annoying habits, and jerky tendencies. Oh, by the way, you're one of them. We all are. 
Being saved doesn't change our personality, doesn't refine our annoying traits or even end our bad habits, does it? Being reformed in the image of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit and it's a lifelong process. Do you know what that means? It means being family is not going to be easy. Now, when we read about those first converts in, in Christianity in Acts chapter 2, it appears that they assimilated into this one big happy family. In fact, you read Acts 2, verse 42 and following, and we read that they were constantly together, had everything in common, and they shared all the resources. It's a beautiful and inspiring picture of what the church can and should be. But there's something that tells me that that passage is more of a a Facebook or Instagram post than in every single day reality. Do you know what I'm getting at? On social media, we have post pics of our family smiling at one another just before diving into that delicious meal together. And what we don't post are the pics of the knockdown drag out fight that took place 10 minutes prior between the kids over whose turn it was to set the table or between mom and dad over who forgot to start the oven timer. I don't doubt the accuracy of Luke's description in Acts chapter 2 of the Jerusalem church, but common sense tells me that there were times that they annoyed the living daylights out of each other. All you have to do is continue to read in Acts to see the conflicts and the drama that unfolds. And then you get to all the issues happening in the churches in Paul's letters that he has to address. It's obvious the early church had family problems. Everything was not perfect. And it makes sense because the early church was made up of people just like the church is today, right? And it doesn't matter what size church. You won't find perfection in large church. You won't find perfection in micro church. Don't fantasize that the early church was absent of problems because that wouldn't be the case. Their goal was to get along all the time, but that wasn't the case in most of the churches. It certainly wasn't the case in the church at Philippi. You probably remember this from our study in Philippians. There's two of the sisters in that congregation that had gotten into such a serious quarrel that Paul had to make it a special appeal to work things out. Philippians 4.2, he said, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Another example, the church at Corinth also had some serious tension between members due to their crazy behavior. In, in that church, there were members who were divided in their allegiance to church leaders. Sound familiar? A son who was sleeping with his father's wife. Members taking other members to court just to get their way. And there's people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. It sounds like an episode, frankly, of Jerry Springer. Just another weekend in Corinth. They would have made the perfect guest, don't you think? for one of those mid-afternoon talk shows. See, to a certain degree, the church will probably always be a bit of a dysfunctional family, but we will come a lot closer to the Jerusalem ideal than the Corinthian circus if we get serious about what Scripture has to say regarding how we are to conduct ourselves as members of the family of God. See, Scripture has a lot to say on this matter. Because like any parent, our Heavenly Father has a deep desire for His children to not only get along, but to also bring out the best in each other. In fact, over 59 times we read in the owner's manual to either treat or avoid treating one another in a very specific way. These passages are commonly referred to as the one another passages.
Now, for the next several weeks, we're going to spend time exploring the one another's in Scripture. While all of the one another practices are important, there's one that stands above the rest. In fact, it is so important that Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul command us to treat one another in this way. We find Jesus emphasizing this expectation to his disciples, his family, in the early hours prior to his arrest. John chapter 13, verse 34. Listen. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, not wanting this command to go in one ear and out the other, Jesus came back to this command within just a few breaths. John chapter 15 and verse 12. My command is this, he said, love each other as I have loved you. And just in case they missed the point, Jesus said it a third time down in verse 17. This is my new command. Love each other. See, if God lived in a house, this is what would be written on that crafty little wooden sign that hangs in front of the, uh, the, in front, of the front door. It would say, love one another. That'd be the mission statement for the family of God. When it comes to the one another passages, there are a couple of really important things to keep in mind. First, the one another's are reciprocal in nature. These are things we should do and receive from each other. See, the one another's are not solely for the super spiritual, the gifted, or those who are in positions of leadership. Every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus must strive to live out the one another's. Whenever we're going through a series of this nature, the temptation is to be critical or cynical, especially if we feel like we're on the short end of the receiving stick. One of the best things you can do to get the most out of a series like this is stay away from that type of thinking. Try to forget about what everyone else may or may not be doing and focus on how you might personally grow in each of these practices. You see, if each of us will put these things into practice, no one, it's in the church family, will go wanting. And here's the second thing. The one another's are non-negotiable. The scriptures that we're going to look at are not suggested best practices. They are commandments. That is so important to keep in mind because some of the things we're going to talk about you're not going to want to do, and I think for a variety of reasons, you might say, well, it's too hard, or you don't feel qualified, or it feels awkward, or maybe even you've been hurt by others, and you just plain don't want to obey. I'm right there with you on many of those things, but God expects us to put all of them into practice regardless. And nobody has the right to say yes to encourage one another, but have a no-can-do attitude whenever it comes to showing hospitality to one another. We don't get to pick and choose. There's an expectation that we will give our best effort to live out each of these practices faithfully. That's what we call living at the radical center of God's will. Why? For the same reason that you expect your kids to do the dishes, even though they don't have the desire or feel like they're capable. God is a good God who knows what's best for us as individuals and for the entire family of believers. Now, back to that command, love one another. Why is this particular one another most important? 
You know why. It's because all the other one another's are simply practical expressions of love. Everything else we discussed are going to, well, it's just going to fall into place if we can just do this one thing, love one another really well. As we focus our attention on this command, I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica. Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. See, even for the church that is doing an amazing job in loving one another, Paul urged them to continue and even do, do so more and more. And I'm probably not going to say anything about love that you haven't heard before, but my hope for today is that we will all be encouraged to love one another more and more. Now, for that to happen, we have to remember that love is a decision. Now, is it only a decision? No, of course not. It's definitely a feeling as well. For example, maybe whenever you have that special date night and you hold hands with that special someone it's in your life, you just get all these warm, fuzzy feelings inside, right? You just love that person so much, it feels like your heart might explode. It's wonderful. But then there are those days when that special person behaves in a way that makes you feel like your heart is going to explode with irritation and frustration. Am I right? You can't believe what a jerk he is, she is being, not she, he is being. To love consistently, you see, we have to decide. We have to choose to love whether the feelings are present or not. What's true in marriage is also true in the church family among believers. See, too often in trying to decide how to treat another person, we ask a question, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, something along these lines. Do I like this person? Do I like this person enough to include him? Do I like this person enough to listen intently to her? Do I like this person enough to say yes to his request for whatever favor? I'm not sure it's possible to, to not ask that sort of a question. How I feel about a person just naturally pops into my head. And I'm sure it does for you as well. However, God never commanded me to like everybody. Let me repeat that. God never commanded us to like anybody. Isn't that a relief? But he did command me to love everybody. See, the next time you're dealing with, a, with anybody, someone who gets on your last nerve, you can act in a loving way, even if you may not like them, because love is more of a choice than a feeling. Now, here's the cool thing about choosing to act in love. Often, not always, but often, when you respond to a person in love, you experience much better feelings for that person. So let me say it again. We must act our way into feeling rather than allowing our feelings to dictate how we act. How do I feel about this person? I think that's the wrong question. How can I best show love to this person that God has brought into my life? I think that's a better question. Is it easy to act in love when the feelings are gone? Are you kidding? Not at all. 
It's by far one of the most difficult things in life to do. So what's going to motivate us to act in love when it is the last thing we feel like doing? Our motivation is simply this. We want to please God, period. We're responding to God's love to us. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, in giving, in the giving of his son to pardon us from sin and deliver us from death, God paid a price that simply cannot be quantified. The size of debt that we owe God makes the national debt look like a small car loan. We owed God big time and we couldn't repay him. I'm not sure we think about it really all that often, let alone take it seriously enough. I know that I don't. How does one even begin to pay on such an enormous debt? We don't. Through Jesus, God forgave our debt. He paid it in full. And now our response back, back to the words in John chapter 15 that we started with is this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's our response. How did Jesus love us? He loved us first. He didn't wait on us before he acted in love. He took the initiative. He left heaven to come love people. He didn't love only when it felt all nice and warm and cozy. He would have never gone to the cross if that were the case. Love at its pinnacle example on the cross was difficult and it was hard, but Christ chose the cross anyway. Why? Love. The natural tendency is to simply respond to love, isn't it? If someone greets me, I greet them. If someone invites me to their home, then I return the favor and invite them to my home. But this is not how Jesus went about his life. He was also out front of people, surprising them with generous gestures of love. He surprised, for example, the leper when he touched him. The Samaritan woman, when he struck up a conversation with her. The tax collector, when he invited him to share a meal. The woman caught in adultery when he stood up for her. This is what we must be about. We are to be a people who take the initiative to surprise each other with generous, unexpected gestures of love. Jesus loved us at great cost. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. To love like Jesus is to give up whatever is necessary, whether it's time or energy, finances, whatever, to bless one another. When we get this down, we won't have to beg people to start a new microchurch. Is it difficult to leave a group you love to start a new microchurch? Oh, man, so hard. But what better way to love people in our community that God's called us to than by going to them with the gospel? We must love one another with everything we've got. Not just in word, but in deed, with action. The world will know that we are Christ followers by our love for one another. So, in closing, there's something I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to pray every single day for the next seven days, the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 12. May the Lord make your love, our love, increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So pray this, Lord, make my love increase and overflow for others. Not only do I hope you will pray those words, but my hope 
is that you will memorize those words. And next week, we'll say those words together. More importantly, though, live on mission while loving one another. And give special attention to every person that God brings into your life. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the command to love one another. I pray, Father, for the grace, the strength, the confidence to love everyone that you bring into our life. We pray, Father, that you will use us, that you will not only work in us, but you'll work out of us as your body. And I pray, Father, that many will come to faith and many will be saved. And for those who are part of the family of God, I pray, Father, that you will help us to love one another the way you have loved us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this podcast, we post a new episode each week. So be sure to subscribe and leave us a review so you can help share our message. We'll see you next time.